comes the exciting drama of the men and the women who live the passionate adventure of Grand Prix racing. Five, four, three, two, one. Did you ever anybody? I hurt somebody's feelings once. Could you take a picture of me and my wife? Oh, I know you. I don't think so. Director John Frankenheimer and Cinerama take you out of the grandstand and hurl you into the most exciting experience of your life. How did you know it was an ambush? That's the first thing they teach you. Who taught you? I don't remember. That's the second thing they teach you. I want $100,000. I want it up front. I want another $100,000 when you get the case. All good things come to those who wait. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. You should do it. We decide on all the official ratings or rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an on-air shout out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for over a year there's something like 40 plus bonus episodes so if you haven't made the jump yet definitely consider that speaking of which we did have i think two people make the jump since we last spoke and that they were uh arjan trangesker and dustin huber so thanks so much much, guys guys. for getting all those bonus episodes we appreciate that and other plug itunes if you guys are listening on itunes you guys have been digging the show give us a good old rating and review over there helps us find new listeners and we appreciate that as well but i think that about wraps that up i'm your host as always josh lewis and joining me also as always jamie miller welcome back welcome back uh we got uh some new movies for you guys today two weeks ago though i think would have been the last time you guys heard from us and forgive my we're doing a little bit of time travel here (laughs) yeah so uh, two weeks ago we would have been talking with Sean R. Moorhead, Twitter personality, anime avi guy, uh, <laughs> and he brought with him uh, two Kiyoshi Kurosawa films. We talked Cure 1997 as well as Serpent's Path 1998, two very bleak, uh, yes, uh, very dark, uh, quasi-supernatural crime films slash horror films that were a lot of fun to talk about, although a little, little scary and a, yeah. a, definitely a little bleak, especially Serpent's Path, so... Um, if you haven't heard that again, that was, uh, two weeks ago, but, uh, last week you guys would have got your bonus episode. I think that was around the time it chapter two came out. We decided to talk Stephen King, uh, cause we, I think we realized we hadn't done him yet. Yeah. So we did the Brian De Palma's Carrie 1976, I believe it was. And also John Carpenter's Christine 1985. I really uh, enjoyed both of those. We had a lot of fun talking both of those as well. Again, that's patreon.com slash podcast. If you guys want those episodes uh but for today we have a very special guest with us taking a break from his uh cutting reporting on the jeffrey epstein murder uh (laughs) we have the pod dad of chapo trap house will menneker himself will how are you doing Boys, I never walk into a podcast I don't know how to walk out of. <laughs> <laughs> well said. That's good. We haven't sealed the exits. Hey, hey, how, about, how, about, how about that Epstein? Almost a bit of raspberry jam back there. Yeah. Almost a bit of raspberry jam, man. <laughs> That's a fact, man. That's a fact. R.I.P. to a real one. 
Uh, <laughs> hey, uh, shout out Sean Moorhead. Uh, Cure is one of my favorite uh, movies that I've seen recently. Fantastic. Uh, unbelievable. Yeah, actually, I was we, we spoke to him directly about that. It is honestly one of my favorite uh, Japanese films just in general. So I was so glad that yeah. someone else brought it on the show because I hadn't yet made the excuse <laughs> to do it. So, yeah, thanks to Sean. And also that movie rules. And if you haven't heard that discussion again, two weeks ago. But this week... Uh, as it goes, Will, we have the guests bring on uh, the two films with them. So what two films have you brought with you, and why do they pair together? Our double, My double feature for you guys are two films that are united uh, by director and Cars. <laughs> yeah. uh, if you are a fan of watching Cars um, on screen in a film, then you could not do better than John Frankenheimer's Grand Prix from 1966 – and then years later, his Ronin from 1998, his two great car chase. I guess uh, Grand Prix is really a movie about car sports, but um, what is a race if not a car chase? <laughs> and Ronin, his um, sort of action thriller, uh, which in my you know both of these films, in my opinion, contain the the best filmed car sequences in motion picture history uh the beginning of grand prix he films the actual um uh, monaco f1 circuit and in ronin just like two of the most jaw-dropping car chases ever put to film oh yeah like 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 yeah. this side of like william friedkin's like french connection or to was, live and die in yeah, la who say. usually when you hear about car chases that's what you hear but honestly you should be hearing more about john frankenheimer's <laughs> yes. ronin in this context Absolutely. uh because holy shit and especially when you look up some of the production details of that which we will be getting into on how they were doing what they were doing. It's very interesting. It's in very scary uh, watching it and having that information in your head. Uh, so, yeah, I think we're going to jump right into it. Uh, we usually talk about the uh, m more popular of the two films first, so I think that's what we're going to be doing today. And that film happens to be Ronin. So we are going to be right back and we're going to be talking Ronin. In the car! From director John Frankenheimer. Robert De Niro. Jean Reno, Natasha McElhone, Stellan Skarsgård, Sean Bean, and Jonathan Price. I won't hurt you. Ronin. You worried about saving your own skit? Yeah, I am. That was my body. All right, we are talking Ronin, the 1998 American action film. Uh, written by uh, one John David Zeke, as well as, uh, I guess, sort of touched up and redrafted by crime writer David Mamet, or Mamet. Oh, okay. One of those two. <laughs> is, he, is he French? <laughs> that, that's really the part that matters. <laughs> yeah. well, uh, the, movie takes place, the movie takes place in France. We'll so see, we that's why I thought. We'll call him David Mamet. For today. And uh, <laughs> again, um, this movie confirms uh, you know, a long-held thesis of mine that a film uh, written by David Mamet but directed by someone else usually whips ass. <laughs> but a movie written and directed by David Mamet uh, mostly sucks shit. <laughs> I haven't uh, any anything in particular. Just, yeah, what's what's something that he's fun? directed? I don't know that I've seen a David Mamet. Uh... Oh God, uh, the Spanish Prisoner. Oh, uh, red, red Belt. Uh, some real real stink bombs. <laughs> <laughs> well. Ronin, for those who maybe haven't seen it, I hope you guys have seen it, but if you haven't, there's a very basic plot to this movie. Oh, yeah. There's a mysterious case 
with undisclosed contents that we we never really learn. It's one of those like classic MacGuffin situations, but also it, because there's so much violence surrounding it, it, it has to take on some kind of like metaphysical quality of like, yeah. th- there's got to be something uh, plutonium something. in there. Or something. Yeah, please. Uh, I, I've, I've always something liked to fantasy- there. I've always liked to fantasize that it's uh, it's the Irish nuclear bomb. <laughs> <laughs> They're trying to get it back, but they can't afford to pay for it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I already paid all their money to build a suitcase nuke and then lost it and had to steal it back. <laughs> and then ushered in the Good Friday Agreement uh, once um, our, our good guys uh, secured it by the end of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and this, this, this case is sought by... Uh, all kinds of people. Primarily, it's sought by the IRA as well as the Russian mob, but also as a result, you have members of the KGB involved. You have members of MI6. You have obviously IRA members involved. Uh, you have the CIA involved, and you have a group of uh, mercenaries who have all been hired by the IRA to uh, reclaim this case. Um, it's just like a, it's like an all-star team of like like ex Cold War uh, assets and agencies, you know. Like yeah. and, uh, I, I love Ronan because I, I love any movie that's about like a team being assembled to do a job, you know. Like it's a bunch of a bunch of guys uh, getting together. Uh, to do a mission, and that's ba- that's what this movie's about. And you've got you know the ex CIA guy played by Robert De Niro. You've got the wonderful Jean Reno as like sort of the all purpose Frenchman. You've got Sean Bain as the um, uh, fake uh, uh, SAS guy, and uh, <laughs> Stellan Sarsgaard as I think you know a former Stasi uh, agent. Yeah, he's the ex KGB guy, I think. I believe so. Or is he German? I can't remember now. He's <laughs> German. <laughs> yeah, and then there's Jonathan Price, obviously, as the head of as the, the IRA. Yeah. yeah. With, and his name, like Seamus O'Rourke. Seamus O'Rourke. <laughs> <laughs> can't get Come much on. more Irish than that, Come baby. on. That's got to so, be stereotyping. Uh, <laughs> when I was rewatching uh, uh, Ronan uh, in preparation for this, um, I, I hadn't seen it in a while. And what struck me uh, rewatching it this time is. How much of it was just sort of like a, 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 a sort of a? It's kind of a dudes rock movie, you know what I mean? It's it's kind of a movie about a bunch of guys on a fun vacation in France, but like any group, like any group of friends, you're gonna find like any group of guys and one uh, and one woman, you're gonna find uh, one there's of some them. Drama, yeah. There's some drama. But you're gonna find uh, like you know, assuming that you're the Robert De Niro character, as I think we all you know like to think of ourselves. <laughs> of course, you're gonna find. One guy who's your realist homie, that's Jean Reno. Yeah. <laughs> One guy that's like, you know, pretty cool, but um, uh, dies or you forget about. That's the, the driver. Uh, and I totally forget his character. <laughs> then, then you're going to find one guy who's uh, a total poser and a bitch and full of shit. And that's Sean Bates. <laughs> and then you're going to find one guy who's a just straight up snake and is going to sell you out and betray you. And that is uh, Stellan Sarsgaard. Oh, no. Ab- absolutely. Yep. <laughs> All the recipes for a great heist film. <laughs> yeah, and I, I like that you mentioned that it's kind of like a Men on a Mission, because we actually were just talking Men on a Mission movies not that long ago. Like, literally, we were talking World War II Men on a Mission with, like, Where Eagles yeah. Dare and stuff. And we did mention on that that, like, the modern version of that, I guess, has to be, like, the heist movie. Yeah, definitely. Because, again, you get all these kind of, like, ragtag groups uh, together. And, and in this one here, what I found kind of interesting is that it doesn't at all take the time to actually 
carve out their personalities. It drops yeah. them in and has their personalities revealed kind of through with, the with action. Through each other. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, and and I was surprised watching this because I was I, I was rewatching it actually uh, again because I was like I, f- I feel like there was there was a weird structure to that movie, and the hmm. first fifty minutes I actually like checked the time is all just plotting for the. Like case. the actual heist, heist yeah. the actual mission itself. It's just all of these guys very sort of like coldly and professionally walking you through the process and having like trying to figure each other out and trying bit. to figure each other out because uh, one kind of genius move is in the, the opening scene of this movie, which kind of has like a really neat, like mystical tribal kind of score to it, even though it's very clearly in like this, like shadowy French pub and like cobblestone streets yeah. and everything. Yeah. Yeah, and and but but De Niro opens that scene by scoping out the geography of the pub, and he's like kind of like looking at everyone who's in there. He's looking at these different characters, and you can immediately tell that he's scoping it out. One, uh, you know, he's placing his gun outside underneath the crates. He's looking for the exit. He's you know he's he's already monitoring his escape plan. Um, but also, uh, like we're about to get introduced to all these different characters with different motivations. So he's kind of scoping out all of the different people and seeing who's there who's for the trust, mission. Yeah. Who and and then once they're all there, it's like why are they there? Who yeah. exactly? Exactly, are they? And all of these questions kind of hang on you and De Niro's character as you kind of watch the movie. And the genius of it is Frankenheimer kind of teaches you how to watch the movie because you're watching these kind of like minute details of like Robert De Niro very strategically placing his gun at the exit so he has uh, a spot to run and pull it out. And that very much is what the process of the character's thinking as well. So he kind of gets you thinking in line with these people who are analyzing both the geography and the people in the room (laughs) trying to uh, figure out kind of like the next step. And then as we see when the mission actually undertakes, you can't predict everything. It turns into a sea of controlled chaos where everything goes wrong. And then from there, it is just quick thinking. It's like, what's next? And I love how almost every action scene is immediately punctuated by a scene where they're like, okay, well, what would he do next? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's a very good point about um, how Frankenheimer sort of like uh, sort of teaches you to uh, ob- observe the action at, like as one of the characters and like the the sort of economy of uh, plot. It doesn't really waste anything, and 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 the characters like they're they are revealed through the action and sort of feeling like De Niro sort of feels each one of them out. And uh, you know, famously, I think in one of my favorite scenes, he uh, he exposes Sean Bain as you know, the, uh, what's the color of the boathouse in Hereford? And uh, he as he said, "You're doing an ambush. I ambushed you with a coffee cup." Like he backs him into a coffee cup and he exposes him as just like a a pretty, just a total poser, a guy who uh, you know doesn't have the uh, the real bona fides as the rest of the crew. Oh yeah, totally right. stealing valor. He's and just like, also, were you in the military? He, I was in the military. Oh yeah, and, and Sean, and Bain the, <laughs> yeah. Sean Bain is the valor thief. <laughs> and he also exposes Stellan Sarsgaard with another coffee cup where he uh, purposely spills coffee and knocks it off the table. And Stellan Sarsgaard, uh, like, you know, lightning quick reflexes, grabs the cup before it hits the ground. And he's like, okay, this guy's a real one. Yeah, something I, I also... watch out for this one. <laughs> yeah, something I also really enjoyed about that moment with, uh, with Sean Bean was... When I think later on they ask De Niro, uh, like, so what color was the thing? And he goes, How the hell should I know? 
as if yeah. like he just made it up to expose Sean Bean. Right. And I love that aspect because of his obviously, character. if he knew, he would be like, "What the hell are you talking about? That's not there." Yeah, you know, right, so exactly. exactly. So he, he just he just you know kind of again matched his posing. Yeah, uh, exactly. to, to expose him, and I also and he love does that too throughout the film, which is great. Uh, the way that Frankenheimer shoots that bit with Stellan Skarsgård is amazing too, because it's this amazing split diopter shot connecting uh, Skarsgård with the Irish woman in the back, uh, oh, and, and it's so. so yeah, Natasha, uh, Natasha, Mac- uh, how do you say her name? Uh, Natasha uh, McKellen, McKellone. Yeah, McKellone from uh, Truman Show, and I think uh, she was also Truman in Soderbergh Solaris. And so yeah, the Soderbergh Solaris. Um, and if uh, if I must say, looking uh, at strikingly gorgeous in this film. Oh yeah, yes. she's she's rocking all kinds of uh, great turtleneck sweaters. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Very very tactical, and there is a hilarious scene where they they make fun of this too, and they have her actually dress up and like go on like a Bond esque type hotel mission briefly with De Niro, and she's like so out of place. And- yeah, like she's still so <laughs> stern faced, and you know just can't eat. like I love how De Niro is constantly like, "Hey, take a picture." You know, he's kind yeah. of given that that charm to everyone he's interacting with. She's, but she's she just stoic it. the entire time. I love that scene because it shows like you know uh, 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 De Niro scene. is is the skilled uh, you know like agency. Um, uh, like you know, in the field guy, and yeah. uh, Deirdre's character is just like the stern IRA uh, taskmaster, and she's like you know dressing up like the wife on vacation doesn't suit her, and De Niro does that brilliant thing where like they want to uh, take photos of the of their target uh, as it comes out of the hotel, and he pretends to be a tourist, and he's like, could you? You take a picture of me and my wife. See, just like this, just snap and click, snap and click, snap and click. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And he's like, point, point directly at us, and we're going to stand exactly where they're going to walk. But you know, I also love even that small, like five second moment where he tells the guy, he's like, "Why don't you take a take a couple pictures with my wife?" Yeah. You know, just so <laughs> yeah. that De Niro can get like the actual the, shots. The, the, he yeah, wants. The, the exact compositions <laughs> and I'm that like, he's looking why would for. You want that? Well, it's and, great, and, though. and the also it's just so natural. The other amazing detail of that is not only that they want to get pictures of the actual team of people who they are going to be eventually, uh, you know, trying to heist the case from. They also want to see how good they are and what the reaction and protocol is in an emergency situation. So he has it set up so the valet, like, crashes the no trespassing sign over. Right. Uh, just in time for De Niro to come over and shoot pictures of all of them being like, holy shit, a gun's gone off or something's gone yeah. off uh, to try to protect the case. It directly cuts to the next scene in which they're talking about, oh, these guys are good. Yeah. They're, they're really reactionary, you know? So that, yeah, that was great. Again, Frankenheimer really walks you through the process of that scene and yeah. as De Niro makes these decisions. And it's funny because they never have De Niro like say what his decisions like are to you right they just have him do it so then you kind of get in that headspace of picking that information up and one other time where they actually do this that i think i've never seen done this same way in another movie um is when they eventually do do the action scene with the case which we will talk about in full because we're gonna have to talk about this set piece this is the first car set piece but near the end of that set piece they reveal that they they finally have the case. Skarsgård goes over to the case, and for some reason that they don't explain to you, Skarsgård takes the case and puts it into a black bag. And when I first saw that, I was like, "Why is he putting it in the, the black bag?" Yeah. And then that he and then all of a sudden it's not in the black bag, and he's yelling at De Niro to take the case, and he hands him a case. And I was like, "Wait, he just put that in a black bag?" I was like so confused. I'm like, "What's going on right now?" Yeah. And yeah. then uh, it's very 
like very soon after it reveals De Niro looks at his hand and in a detail there's silver paint on his hand and on his jacket and he immediately throws the case under the car where it explodes because Skarsgård has just double crossed them stolen the case and given them a fake case with a bomb in it but again there's nothing about the movie that reveals that to you other than Skarsgård's like literal actions that he takes right because he's actually faking being on the team and giving them the right case after that so like again and there was nothing previously other than that one scene where De Niro was kind of skeptical of him in that sort of uneasy split diopter shot and where he tested how good of, you know, an actual sort of uh, asset he's going to be for them. Yeah. yeah. So it, it was just kind of amazing to get that scene where De Niro confronts that this guy actually does have skill. And then he watches that skill get used against him just like in an immediate betrayal that only we're privy to. Yeah. And from there too, it really shows like Skarsgård's just total dark side to his character. I mean, I think the scene after that is when he's with, uh, it might be Seamus. I can't remember. No, he's it. he's with one of no, the no, uh, Russian mobsters. Who's, 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 uh, he meets with a guy who's credited in the film as uh, as the dapper gent. <laughs> <laughs> That's and, awesome. And he, uh, he, you know, he is like he is arranged to now sell him uh, the MacGuffin case. Um, but you know, he's a he's a cagey guy. Uh, always on the lookout. He just double crossed his team, so of course he is going to be looking out for the uh, the double cross uh, soon to come. And to uh, he goes, you know, it's a dangerous world, Gregor. And he goes, I'll show you how dangerous. And they pull up to a playground, oh, man. and Sarsgaard takes out a silenced pistol with a fucking sight on it, and trains it right onto like a little girl on like a you know in a swing set or slide. And at the last moment, the guy like grabs his hand before he like puts a you know a bullet through her, yeah. and he goes. I did that to prove a point. Like, I don't even know that girl, and I was going to splatter her brains all over that little house, but I don't even particularly like you. So just think about what I'll do to you if you try to double cross me. And then, of course, he is double crossed, but then Skarsgård gets the drop on him a second time and blows his brains out all over a car. And then also the like attention to detail on the blood, like just the As splatter it, it, on the window. the window. Oh, yeah. man, it's visceral. Oh, it's so yeah, good. A yeah. lot of the squib work in this was actually very, very impressively done. And it's funny at how much it's deployed, because I wouldn't say this is an overtly gory movie. I would actually say that for the most part, Frankenheimer in the production actually has a pretty kind of blunt realism that he kind of adheres to, which is a huge part of how they shot the action scenes, which we're eventually going to get into. Even like we were just talking about Skarsgård, his his death, like it's a blunt, just, just, there he is, bullet in the head. And you, and it shows, you know, the bullet right in dead yeah. center of the forehead and everything. But like there's that. A, there's just not a lot of accentuating with the guns. Like a lot of it is right. very matter of fact, realistic gun work. The explosions, while big, they are like realistically big. They're yes. not like that cartoon big. Like this never gets cartoonish. This is all grounded and 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 that's with part of why he yeah. wanted to reduce as many sort of special effects as he could by having literal Formula One drivers, which is also the connection drive the cars in this movie. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. He, uh, well, like to speak of that that real before we get into like uh, the, the the first big um, set piece the first big car chase in uh, yeah. in Nice um, what I what I love about the action in this movie and like what I what I always look for like what really separates you know the god tier action movies from you know the pretenders is that right away as soon as the guns start firing as soon as the cars start screeching around they show you immediately a shitload of just innocent bystanders just get mowed down. <laughs> That's exactly, yeah. Totally yeah. randomly. Like, they just start falling, like, 
dropping like flies right away. And all of the cars and all of the guns in this movie, they really underscore over and over again how many innocent people get killed in the crossfire. Yeah, there's one very specific shot that just, it, it's, in my, it's in my brain. It'll be imprinted. It's where one of the cars just goes into one of the, the pedestrians and they fly into a fruit stand. And, like, it's just, <laughs> it's huge. And it's, it's, I mean, it's a two second shot, but it's right there in your yeah, face. Yeah, no, and that's exactly what I was ramping up to. The, the uh, uh, squib work, weirdly enough, it actually is mostly deployed on civilians yeah, because there's parts where they true. there's part at the beginning of that uh, of that Nice car chase when they just start I think De Niro pulls out the grenade launcher and hits the first car and then everyone just starts unloading yeah. and most of the people actually getting hit are the civilians in the background and you yeah. can see like the and he blood focuses flying. on it right yeah. so it's like he really wants you to because the characters never do so Frankenheimer right, yeah. gives you that attention where he's being like look this is how ruthless this kind of like criminal underworld type situation is right. it's very yeah. It, it reminded me a lot, actually, and I think this film is a precursor to kind of like the modern action movement we have a little bit now that we see in kind of like the Mission Impossible movies and a little bit in uh, John Wick, where you have like that okay. constantly. They're they're always surrounded by people, but in the John Wick movies, because there's this idea of they're kind of on like almost like a god level status, yeah. that they're there's there's kind of like mortals walking around who just never see anything. They're right. not really paying attention. Right. Uh, this is like yeah, those people aren't really paying attention, and because of that, they're, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're just getting absolutely uh, ev- eviscerated. I mean, like he—he he, like you said, he keeps it um, uh, pretty realistic. But obviously, like the uh, the god god tier of just wanton innocent death would be, of course, Paul Verhoeven in <laughs> yeah. the subway scene in Total Recall or uh, RoboCop. I mean. Like Paul Verhoeven, like does it to like such a gratuitous degree that it just comes back around to just being like, uh, like so brilliant and perfect, but done to such a ludicrous degree. Yeah, yeah he just loves watching shredded bodies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Frankenheimer's well, Frank got Frankenheimer that, but he just doesn't go that like, far not, with the gore. Yeah, yeah. Frankenheimer <laughs> likes to keep it pretty slick, pretty realistic, not and just so obscenely over the top like Verhoeven does. Yeah, yeah. right. And yeah, and 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 that's part of his kind of. Uh, what he translates to his action here by shooting all of this like kind of for real and having a lot of professional drivers drive these cars at real speeds. He said he didn't yeah, want to do that. That is kind the of- amazing thing. Uh, like why the car chases in this movie. And I remember seeing this in the theater when I was a kid and being, you know, a, you know, absolutely riveted by, by the car action. And, and even from like, there's a, before the Nice set piece, there's sort of like a small mini car chase after the gun deal in Paris goes, goes awry. They uh, sort of skate real quick from the, uh, the, the, the Paris police and you you just you hear that engine and that Audi just like roar and he has this camera mount on the front and you really feel how fast the car is going because as you guys pointed out they do not fake at all the speeds of the cars in these scenes like yeah. you know, like they don't um, film it at a lower frame rate and then speed it up like to cheat like they yeah. like that's what a lot of like action and chase sequences oh, okay. do do so and, and he specifically said I'm going into this movie I am not doing that. Yeah. So, so if yeah. you're wondering why this feels different, that's why. In those scenes, those cars are going like 100 kilometers an hour, and you really, really feel it. Like, yes, you both. do. And I, also, I was like nervous <laughs> while watching it. Like, I was and like, and I don't. I rarely feel that way. He doesn't score any of the car chases to music, not mostly. He really yeah. just lets the sounds of the engine yeah, like just fill the point. entire screen. 
No, that's that that's a huge point because I think the only time there's any music is near the end of the big Paris one. But again, it's like a ten minute chase sequence, so it comes in at like the last two minutes of the chase when like they yeah. hit the bridge and like Just the drama has up. been ramped up a right, little bit. Right. Um, but like before that, again, it really is just in the the sound design of the roar of the engine, like the scrape of metal, the gunfire yeah. like knocking uh, like windshields and mirrors off, and like that is like your score for this this movie. And again talk about like attention to detail some of these beats in here now that i know that they did them for real i'm like how could they have possibly have done that because there's one perfectly timed moment in that paris chase scene where they are like driving through cars and one transport truck immediately has to like slam on the brakes to avoid them no a little bit before that a little bit before they hit the uh the actual bridge and highway part or the tunnels um right 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 but uh one car just squeaks by that transport truck the one in front as it does a sudden stop and i don't they might have got this by accident i'm not totally sure (laughs) but when de niro and uh john reno come up in the in the car behind them the, tra- the transport truck stopped so suddenly that the car that it was carrying on top of it, because it was carrying a bunch of like cars to a dealership, right. falls off the front of it and smashes the ground, blocking the path where that car just went. Oh, uh, yeah. So then they have to take a side route and kind of like drive around it. But again, like a small action beat detail like that, that is like just messy enough, but clearly John Frankenheimer is such a controlled filmmaker. That yeah. really, to me, was like a constantly riveting contradiction of watching like his perfect steady cam camera moves and all of this and watching just like what is like perfectly orchestrated like chaos of people getting mowed down and shredded and cars running into each other cars going at full speed just like narrowly missing each other or even just like there's one where they like try to do that like 180 or drift past a bus and they just like scrape the bus briefly before they continue off right yeah. and it's just like it, it's amazing to watch yeah, so and they, you know, he used a real like a real team of like a uh, uh, real rally car drivers for yeah. this, and I think they did a thing where like they set up dummy steering wheels. They used like um, uh, British cars that where the uh, steering wheel was on what we would say was the passenger seat, and then they set up a dummy steering wheel uh, for the actor, and I think filmed it with a mirror or something, so yeah. it looks like they're really driving it, which is oh, an incredible cool. technique. And just like again, I know this is like this is the cliche for like you know. Uh, film nerd Twitter, but again, <laughs> I just have to. Uh, I have to underscore again the just the absolute pleasure of real drivers, real cars exploding and being flipped, uh, real blanks, real squibs, and like just at the actual destruction of property. Like it, <laughs> yeah. it can't be fake. Like there's nothing. We we love to see it. We, we just love to see. Yeah, it. There, there's nothing quite that like that feels like that. Yeah. So like when uh, when, when you're watching scene, it in these cameras, my God. The scene that I always think of in the uh, in the Nice uh, car chase scene where they're going down that amazingly beautiful like mountain road, <laughs> and De Niro pops out of the sunroof of that Mercedes with a bazooka. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fuck yeah. yeah. And then the flips over in an yeah, explosion. Yeah. And then slides down the mountain road. It's just, oh. It's <laughs> and there's, there's a POV shot behind De Niro's shoulder with the bazooka poking his head out of the car. And you can see it's De Niro yeah, driving yeah. at full speed with his head sticking out of this car and a bazooka. <laughs> and it, it's fantastic. Something and, I also love just about these. And somehow that feels real. Like you're watching, yeah, like, like, like again, like that's so absurd. But the that, way yeah, that, that is more like it, a Rambo thing you know but he still finds a way to keep it grounded in realism yeah uh, something i also love about these uh 
the car chases is the the amount of locations they go throughout each of them. Oh, like yeah. they start somewhere and end somewhere completely else. Like the the one has it starts like I believe you know in the city onto the highway onto the countryside into like this off road area and then they go into another yeah, that, part of the city. That, 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 that off road bit reminded me of like White Lightning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a Burt bit. Reynolds like doing the back roads driving and stuff <laughs> just sure. because because like again another sh- movie with like real cars and real chases and, right. and stuff except this is like obviously even much faster because he's like yeah I'm just gonna hire real Formula One drivers. So, yeah, like, there's also a great uh, POV shot where they're going through like. This, it's it's kind of like a tunnel, but instead there's pillars next to it, and so it just By goes the way, zoom, 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 zoom. I was zoom. gonna say I don't know if you you noticed that, but they directly ripped that off. Mission Impossible in the for? new Fallout film, yeah. yeah, Mission Impossible Fallout, or is it? Yeah, whatever it is at this point. But yeah, no, I, I I made note of that. I was like, this reminds me exactly of that motorcycle sequence for sure. Yeah, where yeah, yeah they're going through the pillars and it's like, <laughs> yeah, it gives this like shutter like effect. It. It's 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 awesome. Yeah, Frankenheimer just has like a really, really clear eye for for action and staging yeah. and composing it. And the fact that he went through the difficulty of, again, filming this all for real and driving at insanely high speeds, all of that combined together just like is insanely compelling to watch. And then again, to also put this, though, in like a really stylish, like almost like uh it's not quite noir it's more in the realm of like jean-pierre melville like his kind of like stylish 60s crime movies he did like uh le samurai mm-hmm. or um I, I talked to you a little bit about that army of shadows which was his version of like the world war ii film as kind of like a bit of a gangster movie oh, okay um which is it's a lot of guys an amazing like, cool. film but amazing yeah, film i love army of shadows army and, of shadows is wonderful <laughs> yeah and frankenheimer seems to be kind of like mirroring some of that i mean maybe it's also just the french settings you get Mm -hmm. a lot of this great architecture and these shadowy locations but he also has a lot of cool dudes wearing (laughs) sick jackets leather jackets trench coats (laughs) yeah they're in hats they're fucking doing double crosses in shadowy tunnels yeah on cobblestone roads (laughs) (laughs) and like like that is what is in between these like super stellar amazing action scenes so and i find i found that stuff almost just as compelling yeah Um, like i said at the beginning like it's a dude's rock movie. Like what the movie, like, you know, I remember when the movie came out, like, it's just like, I think a lot of critics are like, I couldn't follow the plot. Like what was going on? And it's like, it doesn't matter. They never tell you what's in the case. It is just a pure <laughs> yeah. production. What the movie is really about is just like a dude love story between Robert De Niro and John Renault. Goddamn right. It is <laughs> like, they're just two real ass dudes who have like, you know, for, you know, from the same world who just like, come together and they just like love and respect each other by the end of the movie. Well, yeah. yeah and, and that like, ending is touching. Like, well, yeah. Like it, it even, it even sets it up for you. I mean, even in the ending, he literally says like no questions, no answers or whatever. Right. Like right, that's yeah. the same thing. Like he's like, I'm fucking confused. Like you were confused. I'm the, in the movie. Like, right. uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, but it's a great, point. but also it, it kind of comes back to, uh, obviously like the central metaphor, the reason they even call it Ronin and open the text the way that they do the idea of kind of like, kind of like these wandering professionals, these, these people. I mean, the idea, obviously we've talked about it cause we've talked about samurai films on the show already before, but samurai has a master, and when you are kind of like a lone samurai and you don't have a master and you're kind of sort of like disrespected like a little bit in Seven Samurai, mm-hmm. which I guess should be called Seven Ronin now that I actually <laughs> think about it, uh, you know, you're you're a ronin. But instead of these guys serving previous masters, like they all served like previous states. 
And what yeah. we were kind of seeing is kind of like a remnant of all of these different people who worked in different kinds of secret services or fought in certain militaries. And there's kind of like this tying together of the criminal underworld as well as the political underworld, because it's obviously all of these different sort of political factions also fighting for this stuff right. and paying them kind of like under the table. So it's like this weird thing where like they're no longer getting paid as like a government agent. They're getting paid by the same governments to do like way grosser shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, they've kind of just found like a new kind of industry for this. And one thing I found really fascinating and actually friend of the show, um, I got to shout him out friend of the show, Dave Imboden actually wrote this specifically in his review. So I can't say it without mentioning him. I, <laughs> otherwise I'll be fucking plagiarizing him. But w what he said about this was that there's actually a lot of focus on this as these guys as like, blue collar workers almost oh yeah, yeah. yeah for sure <laughs> yeah yeah very, very early on in the movie uh when they're all um just sort of like have, have just assembled and are you know at the safe house for the first time uh you know uh de niro and uh, uh sam and uh vincent begin their sort of uh their their love affair um you know jean renault offers him one of those really cool yellow cigarettes and De Niro says, are you labor or management? And John <laughs> Renault says, if I was management, I wouldn't give you a cigarette. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Then, like, there's all this character like over and over again, like just like, like, you know, I, I'm a guy who needs a j job or when they're, when the character with, um, uh, in, in the scene where they go to the Michael Lonsdale character's place to do for the great, uh, self-surgery scene. What a great uh, scene Of course, too, Lonsdale yeah. is a guy who, I don't know, some ex-intelligence guy who now just like does, um, little, I don't know, Warhammer style, like figurine <laughs> painting, but yeah, for yeah. samurai. And, uh, you know, he says like a Ronin is a, a man without a, without a master. He's like, you understand that, right? And De Niro goes right now, I'm a man without a job. I'm a man without a paycheck. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and, and he even says, uh, at one point he tells him the story about all of the Ronins who, when their master was slayed, they went back and they, uh, got like vengeance by sneaking into a castle and then committing suicide. And De Niro's like, sounds like my kind of job or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and they also have a lot of talk too about, like De Niro was constantly asking, um, like sort of we need like more guys, we need more money. And like, <laughs> yeah, and, there's one point where he IRA literally is like constantly trying to, you know, uh, yeah, like, uh, you know, skimp out on a uh, work workplace protection. Yeah. He, he literally <laughs> negotiates <laughs> comp for everyone at one point where he's like, okay, this just got more dangerous. So everyone's getting a raise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was a working class hero in that movie. Um, slightly undermined by the fact by the, uh, I guess slight twist at the end that he is not in fact a Ronin, but is, um, as always still been with the fucking snake. Yeah. <laughs> he does. He is, he is sort of like a, uh, yeah, a, um, a, a union organizer. Yeah. He gets everyone a big paycheck. He stands up for labor against uh, well, against Jonathan. Yeah, and I, and I love that he's always uh, like asking questions, trying to be like, okay, so like, who who are we going after? Like, do you do you know anything about this? Like, who are our employers? What are we going after? Yeah, and he and seems they, to be like the only one too, which is which is well, yeah, because uh, even the one guy is just uh, when it's like when, the other guys just want to get the job done and they don't really care about the in, the, in that really much. awesome tunnel double cross sequence early on when they're trying to buy Incredible, the weapons yeah. and De Niro gets a bad feeling about going into the tunnel because he's like, okay, why would they just have us walk further why couldn't they just drive up so he's yeah. getting a bad <laughs> yeah, feeling about it makes sense and uh he looks over to like uh to to jean reno and he's just like dude like you don't have to go in there and he's just like i'm getting paid to go in there yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> is his response this is my job yeah so yeah. i also wanted to just say uh, i thought uh for the short time that he's in it i thought sean bean was fantastic oh his raspberry has, jam bit that will mentioned at the top of the show i ha was losing my mind i also well, love there when, a bit of raspberry jam back there. 
I also love when uh, the, when it all pops off and they start shooting at them in that tunnel sequence. Yeah. Where they escape and they start driving away and he's and they're getting away with it. Just to show that Sean Bean's character is kind of like not used to this or whatever. He's the only one in the back, like freaking out, like, <laughs> we made it. It's okay. We're doing all right. We've done it. Yeah. And he's like super pumped up and just giving himself away as it goes. I thought, I thought his, and short then of course, has to great. pull over and then just vomit immediately. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like just, he, he's already giving it away. And then he does something like that. It's, it's, uh, I thought it was a great performance. Well, yeah. And, and that was how De Niro kind of knew that he wasn't a pro. Like exactly. that, that, that he was shooting exactly. and killing people for and like the first like, time. And especially like even the first thing, like you have him freaking out then, but even prior you were saying, it's like, why are we going in this tunnel? Like, this is uh, not a good idea. And Sean Bean was the one to kind of egg yeah. that on where he's like, yeah, we, he's we like, let's just get in. it done. He's yeah. Like, let's just do it. Get it done. Don't want to hear about it anymore. And then as soon as it starts popping off, he just starts spraying and, and, and uh, yeah, his, his character is just going, he's like, yeah, get some. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everyone else is like completely straight faced so, and yeah, silent. Just, like, like, like yeah. workman like, uh, you know, efficiency. <laughs> It's, it's awesome just how many it. details there are that he's not a pro. Oh, Before yeah. that scene where De Niro confronts him and it's like, oh, you could draw a figure about Crossfire. Fucking idiot. Where'd you oh, learn uh, that? Yeah, yeah. But like, yeah, to the working class thing about like, different scene, you know, pros and posers, uh, Sean Bain begins to give himself away because he's like trying to do like, you know, like the manly tough guy uh, shop talk. I'm a weapons man. Like, you know what? Like, you know, what do you, what do you like using to De Niro? And he's like, Pff. he's like. It's the tool for a job. A gun is a gun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, there's this actually... This Ocean's Eleven, bro. <laughs> there's actually a lot... One one thing I do appreciate about uh, David Mamey's uh, punch-up of the screenplay, because I heard that a lot of it was just that they couldn't get a lot of the characterizations right, which is why they kind of mm. brought him in to kind of do a lot of the dialogue. And there is a lot of his kind of, like, tough guy crime novel dialogue in this. Yeah. Where there... Uh, I love the bit where uh, Sean Bean says to him, he's like, you ever kill kill anybody he's like i hurt somebody's feelings once <laughs> and there's a lot of straight talk like that where he's like you worried about saving your own skin it's like yeah i am it covers my body <laughs> yeah and and like it, it's just it's so simple uh, but what do you want for christmas my two front teeth <laughs> yeah exactly and it it, it just it, it does sound so slick and so cool coming out of like an actor like robert de niro's mouth in that yeah. in that kind of way and can um, I say, this was like, a lot of people, I think you were saying uh, to me just a, a couple of weeks ago, a lot of people say that like Heat was kind of one of his big ending, you know, performances, performances where like they felt like he really tried and went for it. Yeah, he's it's great like, in this. It's almost oh, like uh, his character from Heat didn't die and then became like a really, really... <laughs> Join the CIA. High, yeah, yeah. No, he, it was like, he's if, like, if I know what to do, guys. Me. I've done heists, you know? It was like if his character from Heat didn't die and had even like an ounce of a sense of humor. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because like, uh, like uh, I, I this slight digression about Heat, like, well, I think one of my favorite, favorite moments in, in Heat is when... Um, What's her name? Uh, Amy Brenneman's character. Um, I think I know exactly flirting, what starts Cedar's flirting with him about. at the uh, the diner, <laughs> and he, he she starts talking to him, and he's like, like, "Lady, why are you talking to me?" And then she's like, "Nothing. Just what, what are you reading?" And he goes, "A book about metals." Yeah. <laughs> it's like he's, he can't That's talk exactly. to people at all. Yeah, yeah. There's like no charm. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah, he's just he he really is like just like full blown professionalism in that. Whereas this, yeah. he kind of has a he's got a bit of like an irony streak to him. Yeah, the, yeah. Where he's right. been a professional. You know, he's got he's got a kind of a sense of humor in this. <laughs> yeah, no, a hundred percent. And th we should get to it. The the big climax of this, which uh, so we have the two major car chase sequences which are both phenomenal but the end of this film is actually kind of like a pretty 
like uh, very typical for a crime novel where you have just like the third act that takes place at a location that was mentioned earlier in the film. Right, right, uh, right. And everything kind of just goes to shit. But I was <laughs> surprised again at how well orchestrated that all of this was. I was actually surprised yeah. people found it confusing because uh, on, on my rewatch of it, I was actually drawn by like how easily I was following every single person's decision process that they were making. Yeah, me too. Where, um, uh, cause the, the last bit of this takes place at sort of like a, a figure skating show that they're, um, putting on. Um, and at this point, every single different faction has been involved, whether in the first car chase or the second car chase, we kind of have an idea of who's involved in this. There's the Russian mob. There's people working for the Russian mob who is who Stalin Skarsgård killed. Um, uh, when he pretended to like, or he was going to shoot the child, I guess he didn't pretend to, he would have shot that child. Yeah, <laughs> definitely would have. That, that was the whole thing. Um, and al- although I do love that scene even more, uh, in context with the scene that follows yes, in, yes, the, in, yes. the, in the rink, because again, he sets up like another life or death bluff, but he pulls it with like the head of the Russian mob <laughs> who just straight like, up calls yeah, it. He's like, uh, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, like the, the, the head of the Russian mob. Uh, and like, I love the way they set it up because they first introduced the character after um, uh, uh, Sarsgaard uh, calls him from the phone of the dapper gent after he kills him. And he's like, is the job done? And he's like, uh, haha, it's me. Uh, but you didn't think I was going to pick up the phone uh, right now. <laughs> and idiot. my price just went up 300%. <laughs> and uh, the Russian mob guy is seen um, you know, uh, like, you know, uh, applauding, watching, uh, you know, a beautiful, uh, young figure skater, uh, rehearse who's his like, you know, uh, girlfriend or uh, the object of his, uh, you know, the, the affections of his cold criminal heart. And he's <laughs> delighted by this beautiful figure skater. I think it was a real, fuck, it was a real figure skater who played that character. Yeah, a real Olympic. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. A real Olympic figure skater. And, you know, he's like, he's, he's delighted by her. And like, this is, the, this is the one bit of affection that he has in his cold, you know, <laughs> Russian criminal heart. And Sarsgaard sets it up. He's like been d- double crossed and been double crossed so many times. And he's like, <laughs> look, I got the case here. Like, I know you're going to try to double cross me. And like my dead man switch is I have a sniper that's going to kill your beautiful figure skater unless you like, uh, you know, unless I don't call him in like 30 seconds. And the Russian mob guy lets him kill the fucking girl and then puts a bullet straight through his head. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, 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 and even even funnier is I actually think it might be the reverse. I think he actually shoots him. And then knowing that the figure skater is we'll going to get shot anyway, oh and, and, God. and doesn't even yeah. try to prevent it, just right. like is just like, yeah, that's fine. She's about to die in ten He's seconds. Like, uh, yeah, you're done, bro. Yeah, whatever, <laughs> it's done. And there's an amazing shot too that he sets up perfectly because oh, again, I think Frankenheimer's attention to detail in some of the compositions and like the widescreen lensing. He shot a lot of this with wide-angle lenses, and so he can fit a lot of the background into the frame. Because again, he wants you to pay attention to those backgrounds where civilians are getting shredded and everything. Right. But the shot that he sets up with Skarsgård is Skarsgård very detailed, looking at him, telling him about his bluff, and in the background is the figure skater on the television. And then when De Niro and Jean Reno run into the room too late after that double cross had just went down, uh, they look down, they see Skarsgård bullet in the forehead, dead. <laughs> And then the camera pans up because they look up and they see the dead figure skater yeah, on the television the still. Shot. They haven't cut away. It's her lying dead on the ice on the television. And then immediately they're just like, yeah, okay, uh, moving on. So they, <laughs> yeah, and they well, just go right back to the, the mission. And this sequence is so amazing because Seamus uh, McGarvey, played by Jonathan Price, is the head of the IRA guy. He's involved in all of this. And he double crosses 
the Russians, or at least like in, gets involved as well by dressing up as a security guard who's uh, handling a young child, moves away from the young child to pull out a gun and gun them both down. And what I love what he's doing to the to the young child is like consoling her like trying to be like oh it's okay darling don't worry like a, like a, like about the yeah. person she just saw shot we'll in the figure mom. skating we'll find rink your mom and then the next second he's taking out a gun and just popping three guys uh, in front another of the child br- another brutal detail i love is uh when the figure skater gets uh no scoped she's in the <laughs> middle of one of those like fantastic spins that they do on yeah. the ice yeah just to add a little bit of detail there yeah, well, exactly. yeah and and another detail as <laughs> because, because this Scene, no joke this scene reminded me of that key and peel sketch that that where, where it's just nothing but double crosses you know the one that i'm talking about where like one guy pulls out a gun and then the other guy's like actually i was a fucking secret agent or a sleeper the agent time. the whole time and he's just like oh yeah well i was you and he rips off like a mask and like yeah. like it's just like, how many double crosses can you fit in three minutes this movie does like 10 yeah. and one of as they're chasing down because again the, the the another the big double cross at the very very end is robert de niro being like yeah i'm not actually like a mercenary professional I'm I never left I am still working with the CIA I was just embedded in this mercenary group to try to get closer to the IRA who was paying us which is why he was asking all the questions about the employer uh and um so that he can kill uh Jonathan Price's character but the best bit is when he goes back into the rink to take down Jonathan Price you can see in the background the figure still. skater dead on the ice still the ambulance people picking her up so the one shot jonathan price is running <laughs> in and she's dead in the background and then wow. de niro chases after him and in the background they're walking past de niro with her on a stretcher <laughs> in the background <laughs> jesus christ <laughs> and it's it's so Frankenheimer. it's a gag like that is a physical gag about the death of like a beautiful innocent o- olympic skater, skater yeah <laughs> Oh my god. It is completely horrifying. And then again, De Niro still loses that, loses the upper hand, and John Reno, who was previously just shot outside, is the one who gets him from behind. It's like the tenth time in that whole sequence that someone gets the upper hand on someone else and is like, haha. Yeah, yeah, for <laughs> sure. It's incredible. So yeah, and that's that's like the climax of of the movie is like this super, like really grim, stylish, like noir double cross craziness yeah. on top of all of that. So, like, yeah, I gotta say. Pretty goddamn impressive movie, I think. Yeah, Heading incredible. towards the reductive rating around here, uh, which for you, Will, is the part of the show where we remove all the words, all the nuance, and we give the movie a number between one and five, but it's also kind of turned into closing statements. So if there's anything else you have left to say about the movie or any like scenes we didn't get to or lines that you want to mention before sure, we go out, sure. that's also where we do it here. Uh, but for me, this is like a really, really solid to high, like four out of five for me. I, 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 yeah. I feel like in a few rewatches, this could just grow in my estimation. Cause even on this rewatch, yeah, I was I'm like noticing small details. I didn't pick up before. Like, again, I never noticed that figure skater bit before and picking up on it this time. I was like, wow, that is so dark. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and speaks perfectly to, again, this kind of like really sort of like, uh, disgusting criminal and political underworld that these guys kind of operate in and also, but kind of like the kind of nonchalant and professional attitude you have to maintain to kind of like stay sane inside of it. And also like it's a guys being dudes, men on a mission type thing. Yeah, so we like, got you, that touching ending. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, you're also still kind of affectionate for the way that, um, you know, there was a sense of vulnerability between De Niro and John Reno's character as they yeah. kind of learn to work with each other and kind of read the room together. And despite the fact that pretty much every single person they interacted with 
uh, died in this movie, except for those two. Uh, no, and uh, the, 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 oh uh, yes, uh, the RRA Deirdre woman. Lives. Yeah, yeah, she yeah. she she made her way out. Uh, and speaking as uh, well, speaking of heat, uh, just, yeah, it kind of has that vibe, right? Where he's heat. just like, I gotta do it. I'm sorry. I have to. I have to move on. You know that whole thing. Drive off. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it's it, it's, it's a little less heartbreaking just because. Oh, definitely. In in heat, that relationship is just so fleshed out. Yeah. And yeah. also, you. And I think he's trying to make it more cold in this yeah, movie this movie is so. colder intentionally because yeah. the characters are a little bit colder whereas in heat the thing about them is that even though they have cold professions they are both very sensitive vulnerable people which is just kind of like what all of michael mann's are like yeah. he makes very stylish crime movies for like th- that are basically macho weepies like you can't watch any of his movies and not just be like oh that muscly man is so sad <laughs> they're, all, they're all they're all emo thugs yeah i did read, in, I, I did read um that uh, they shot a couple like different endings of the movie that like uh, didn't test well, but uh, oh. one of the original endings of the movie, uh, after um, uh, Deirdre Natasha Mechelon, uh gets away, um, like John Reno, John Reno and Robert De Niro's character don't notice, so they never they never see or like. But basically, Deirdre is just thrown into a van by the IRA, black bagged and like probably tortured to death and killed Whoa. as a traitor. Oh, that might I might have actually preferred that. Yeah. <laughs> Because that, that's even grimmer. That would that would hammer home kind of like the, the more darker, seedier elements of this that yeah. are always implied well, and always there. Because, again, Frankenheimer pays so much attention to detail about actually how gross a lot of this stuff is. And they, there's even that scene. I think it's the guy that makes the miniature Ronin, yeah. the guy that does the surgery or whatever. He, mm-hmm. he explains that sacrificial thing that yeah, the, the samurais the, the, do. The, the, the and I thought that that was going to kind of lead to something, but it, it doesn't really, yeah. uh, to what I could tell anyway. And I thought it was going to lead into something like that, or maybe De Niro sacrifices himself or something like something that. Something for honor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, oh, but for me, I would say, same with you, high four. Uh, I could see this thing growing as well. It's uh, the second time I watched it, uh, <laughs> I really did get to kind of feel what, he was doing when it in regards to showing the the violence that the that just normal everyday civilians go through like <laughs> now that you've explained that that whole thing with the uh the figure skater in the background it's like he's constantly trying to remind you even though all this kind of cool heist actions going on these are the the victims going that that are uh you know, being killed in the background it's all these normal innocent people and i thought that that uh was nice just touch. something such a a great attention to detail uh, that he throws in there. Um, and then, of course, there's just the the car chases, which are phenomenal. Like, this guy's... Uh, he, he really knows how to ramp up action and uh, and just make such an intense few scenes and set pieces. Yeah, I also so. thought, like, the ruthless... We never mentioned it, but, like, the, there's, like, a really ruthless, like, rhythm to it. It's very propulsive. Yeah, Like, this yeah. movie never stops. Like, even in moments where it's, like, quiet, oh, I feel yeah. like it's always moving. Definitely. Like, a, like, like kind of like a car. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, also, before we uh, moved on, I also wanted to shout out one line. I once removed a guy's appendix with a grapefruit spoon, which is so <laughs> sick. And it's in that shot that's almost ripped from the Manchurian Candidate, too, because we did talk about John Frankenheimer writer. We did the Manchurian Candidate in seconds, his 60s right. films. And there's one he loves mirror shots. Um, like that one of Rock Hudson in seconds looking at like the four different mirrors yeah. uh, while his like face has come uh, he's looking at his new face right. um, but the bit where Robert De Niro is doing the self-surgery or at least walking John, like Jean Reno how to do uh, pull the bullet out of him and it's like this shot of De Niro 
Nero's face in the mirror looking at his own wound, but we have the shot of his abdomen there and everything as they're like slicing into right. it. Oh, just gross. Yeah. Uh, but for you, Will. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I concur. Uh, I, you know, uh, God tier Frankenheimer, completely stacked cast. Uh, like I said, two of the greatest car chases ever put to film. Uh, just jaw dropping action in this movie. Well, yeah, one of the best action thrillers of the 90s. I will give it, I will give this movie uh, one Audi 8 with uh, Audi A8 with a nitro uh, booster injection system. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Well, we are going to be right back. I think that will wrap it up for Ronin 1998. We're going to be right back and we are going to be talking Grand Prix. Hi. Right, we are back and we are talking Grand Prix, the 1966 American sports drama film directed by, uh, once again, John Frankenheimer. I believe that this was both uh, his first color film uh, because oh, we, cool. this film, I think, is the one that came right after Seconds, which we already did, which came out in 1966. And as we know, that was a really inky, disgusting yeah. black and white film that almost had like a Lynchian sense of horror that to he it. He really has some range. Like this yeah, is really go from like uh, you know I've seen Mindery four different films and they've seconds. all been completely yeah. different. It's despite crazy. the fact that you can tell that there's like a real technical precision interlocking yes, all of the films definitely. together. Uh, again, he's ranged from like sort of like political paranoia to kind of slick crime to like mm. full out kind of like identity thriller horror. And yeah. now we're doing the good old sports melodrama, <laughs> yeah. which we haven't done sports yet on the show. And I don't know that we've actually done big melodrama yet either. Maybe Lawrence oh. of Arabia is a little melodramatic. Yeah. That'd be the closest, um, I think. But this is this is a little broader. It's a little soapier. It's a little mm. in the realm of kind of like old Hollywood. And it, it was interesting to read that John Frankenheimer mostly did agree to do to this movie because of the access it gave him to formula one oh, okay. uh, because so he really uh, wanted to just focus on well, those cars previous to this film they never let anyone really like actually go in there and film it they might have done tv broadcasting of it i'm not sure oh, but okay. they didn't actually let anyone have access to behind the scenes formula one and actually they were skeptical of even letting him do it but he said look like i don't want to just do something stupid that's going to make your thing look shitty he's like i want to actually like get in there so he shot some test footage for them okay. with cars and he said this is what I what I want to hook up to your cars, and then they were like, "Oh yeah, we want that." Uh, so they gave <laughs> him one hundred percent full cooperation and just said, "You can literally film do whatever like, you actual want. races. Like you can do like anything that you want." They were like, "We will lend you our drivers. We will even lend you our drivers to train some of your actors to drive, which some of these actors did learn to drive professionally." So, so some of those shots are pretty yes. authentic. Then wow, that's incredible. Because I was oh, like wondering the whole, how the they were doing first, that. The whole first like twenty minutes of the movie, the Monaco, uh, yeah. Sequences is like yeah, you really filmed like the actual like circuit in in Monaco, which is one of like I'm not like a big uh, like like car racing guy, but it is like one of the most impressive spectacles like in, in sports is like they turn like that whole city into yeah. an track, and it is incredible. Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 amazing to watch, especially because he shot it in like the super Panavision seventy millimeter, so like these huge lenses, this huge film stock. Um, and then apparently they projected this in 70 millimeter Cinerama, which basically means they had three different projectors. 
and they used a curved screen so that they could extend the length of the shot. So when people were watching this in that format, like you would have felt like you were there. Like especially it's, those POV shots because oh like, yeah, it seems like he on purposely you know sets those POV shots at their at the height of their speed and always when they're doing turns and it yeah. really gives you this. Uh, this, this idea of what these guys have to do just impulsively. Like, it's like, there's the turn, you know, just go sharp. And it's, you know, they're going, what, 120 miles per hour, something like that. And it's it's just, uh, it, it it's so impressive. It's unbelievable. Yeah, by the, way, I be- by the way, I believe he, I believe that he used the same camera rigs in Ronin as he did originally in Grand Prix. There's like the same oh, model cool. captured yeah. shots. Like well, yeah, you, you could, were 40 years later. Well, yeah, because you wow. could, I, I, I read, I think, that he invented them for this movie. Yes. Holy shit. Um, this dude's amazing. Because no one had actually filmed cars the way that they filmed cars in this movie. Well, yeah, I was going to say, like, the shots, like, where they... Uh, that they POV show of the, the cars not only like, the POV but the the shot where they're showing the driver drive the car oh yeah and, and with no windshield like seeing yeah. their skin uh oh, there yeah. and everything it's, unbelievable. It's, it's horrifying like and what's great too is how he he paces and sp- or spaces out the the techniques that he uses like with every race he adds another camera technique that you haven't <laughs> seen before just so it's like you know There's he just shows everything that he's that he's capable of it's yeah great. he has so many different camera setups for these racing sequences it's yeah. actually kind of insane just to like think about like organizing that or orchestrating that there's a part where uh it'll constantly show the the drivers and the and the cars but then it does a split screen with the audience members that are that are focused on them and and that's great too yeah like he he uses split screen he uses like handheld grounded shots he'll switch to like helicopter shots he'll switch to car mounts Oh yeah, um, some both of those heli shots following the cars just yeah. for like a solid minute. Oh, it's it's great. Yeah, uh, I mean, like I think I think the thing too. I mean, it's like a, you know, other than the virtuoso way in which he films cars um, in motion. I mean, it's like a totally, very, very dramatically different film than than Ronin. And I think like the thing yeah. to keep in mind about Grand Prix is that you know it's made in the '60s. It was his first color film, but it was like also. Uh, like the type of movie that was very much in vogue of that era, which were these huge, grand international productions that featured, yeah. uh, like you know the, the American, like uh, this, like a, a huge international cast and setting and like co-production. So you know you have uh, James Garner, but like you know uh, Eve Montand, and I think you know uh, uh, Antonio Sabato, like the the Italian French uh, uh, Ava Marie Saint, and then I think you know I think for your uh, listeners the sleaze the, the sleaze. <laughs> <laughs> out there probably my favorite of course Tashiro Mufune has a supporting role as the the uh like the Honda team uh owner based on like the I think the founder of Honda yeah he's the uh y- Yamura character who is yeah. uh sort of like the uh last Tires minute funder yeah. of James Garner's character who kind of gets kicked out because they think that of, like, he the took Ferrari out his partner team. yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, because to be fair, he did really harm his partner. But oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. here's, here's watching that movie, uh, James Garner, who's like the hero of this movie, is a huge dick throughout this yeah, movie. Yeah, he's not a likable character at he's all. He's really unlikable. Yeah, very. F- from beginning to end. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty <laughs> like he irredeemable. I was and really like, thinking there would be a... at the end, too, after, after another <laughs> guy dies. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, and, and then what I what, what I find interesting, I mean, I we're just jumping to the end here, but you, you brought it up and I think it just fits, is jumping from his one of his... I don't know if they call each other friends, but at least colleagues that they have appreciation for. After he finds uh, out about his death... 
the scene after is just him like reminiscing about the good times on the track, which I love that that sequence where he's just like hearing the the engines rev and all that. Yeah. But it's just to have such a terrible thing happen right before in the scene directly prior to that was yeah. was interesting. And, and he's just like, man, the good times we've had. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I almost killed my teammate and one of my colleagues literally died. Yeah, well, Great times. well and, and it's funny because it, it's not even because he intentionally harms that teammate in that first race. No, it, it's just it, it, it's just because he was kind of yeah, he was just selfish. selfish. Yeah, yeah selfish, he, he wanted yeah. to keep racing and then he decides too late to give up and then his brakes don't work even though everyone was telling him, "Yo, get off the track, like yeah. move over." And yeah. he decides to move over like at the worst time. And that actual shot, by the way, that crash where like, I don't know if there's a dummy in that car when he smashes that wall, but it looks like his head crashes into that wall and then he flies off into the water and And it it looks real. And these guys don't have a roof. This is just like, if this thing flips, that's your head on concrete. There it is. Yeah, you're just dead. It's just like that adds such a, I I was so nervous (laughs) like watching those uh, crash sequences. Yeah, they actually, one of the characters, I think, it might be James Garner's character has sort of like a voiceover while they're doing that opening race where he describes it yeah. perfectly where he said that it's like sitting in a coffin surrounded by gasoline like being inside <laughs> of a bomb that's how he describes driving and like the adrenaline of it so it immediately sets like that this is a very um uh dangerous uh to drive at these sort of like extraordinary yeah, like, speeds like they like say this. that they need a lack of imagination because they don't actually want to think about death you know <laughs> they just want to drive so it, it's uh I, I loved those those i also loved the uh the voiceovers in general when they would explain something technical to you because like you know you, you see them gear up and, and and all that stuff it's just as a person that's not a, a car guy i don't really know what they're doing it just looks really impressive so to have those voiceovers while you have such great visuals of the race to explain some of the technicalities I thought was pretty effective. Right, but but I feel like also just like kind of that propulsive adrenaline of it Absolutely. really just gets you into the zone of why people would be putting, like why those men put their bodies into harm's way. Right. And then also a kind of sort of... Yeah, like there's that line where he's like, you just drive and hope that your car doesn't blow up or something Yeah, and, like and one thing I wish the movie kind of explored a little bit more, but it is there on the periphery and they do show, come back to it a little bit of time, is also how an industry kind of like builds itself around that. Yes. That everybody recognizes that these people are just fucking crazy and basically trying to kill themselves but everyone is in their own way you know sort of profiting off of that craziness and just getting entertainment out of it yeah so it it follows kind of like their emotional lives as you know they're they're falling in love they're maybe getting married or you know it's like you know each one of these cars is like a huge investment but they also are like you know moving advertisements for actual you know car makers like ferrari mclaren honda so it's like the car that you know like is the driver obviously gets to you know hoist the trophy, but it's also like the car that kind of when if your car wins the race, it's like you have the best you know you the best engineers, the best engine, yeah, etc. Yeah, exactly, and, and there, there is there is something thorny in there about the idea of like these people putting their lives on the line to like move product in this way, right? That, that, I mean, and that it directly hammers home both the danger and sort of like almost like the the frothing excitement of it, like that. There's one great bit. Where one guy, I think, like he he crosses the finish line on fire, yeah. and everyone <laughs> it's the American, yeah, yeah. And, and everyone comes up to him ready to take photos because they're hoping for like a charred corpse that they can put on the you know on the front of the newspaper or whatever. And uh, everyone's j- and like he's just like, what the hell? Yeah, like, <laughs> like is this away. what you want? Like, <laughs> yeah. 
Like they're they're excited at the idea of seeing some kind of spectacled violence in that kind of way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, the, you know, so it, there is a little bit of that in the periphery, but there is a lot more time kind of spent with these guys in what mostly amounts to kind of like an old Hollywood melodrama and like trying to live out their emotional lives and kind of the stress that the work puts on their Yeah, I mean, like, mo- like most of the actual movie, and it's it's, it's a very, very long movie. It's like most of the episodes, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's three hours long. Most of the actual movie is just about like, you know, um, classic 1960s, just like, you know, people cheating on their wives and having affairs. Like, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Just what people did back yeah, I hate then. to see it. Honestly, there weren't too many likable people in this movie. <laughs> um, the, my, my favorite thing, like, you know, per- peripheral to, like, the, the film itself, as you mentioned early on, like, the, the realism of Frankenheimer worked with all these real F1 drivers to, like, put these actors in the cars and, like, train them, um, you know, in, in actually how to drive these, you know, incredible pieces of engineering and machinery. And basically none of the actors could do it. Like, you couldn't – like, they couldn't even shift gears in one of these things. Save for James Garner, God God Garner, got <laughs> so fucking good at it. Like, he was so fucking talented. Like, uh, he worked with uh, one of these – a famous driver, Bob – Bondurant of uh, the Shelby Cobra uh, team, and Garner got so good at it that I think he actually went on to do like a sort of semi amateur circuit. Wow! Uh, yeah, they, they basically yeah. said that's incredible. It, they told him the people like training him. They were like, "Dude, if you hadn't become an actor, you actually could have been a pro racer." That's crazy. Because they, they were just like the natural probably, talent to pick probably it up. Felt was there. a little conflicted like, I think, like, about like, it, Yvonne, given this. Yvonne Pond or like Antonio Sabato. Like, I don't think any of those guys could like even figure out how to start one of those. Cars. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> He probably would have been a little conflicted about it, given the uh, the script, constantly talking about death and, and things like. He's probably like, yeah. I'll, "I'll stick to acting, though." Well, yeah. Speaking of which, one thing I I, I looked up uh, watching uh, that I, I didn't realize watching this film, but when I looked it up, I was like, "Holy fuck!" Uh, five of the pro racers who drove in this film, they died within two years of this film being made. Jesus. On the track. Oh my God. Five of five. them. Five. In two years. And I think so they that's said- that's dangerous and, and this I think really they said, This movie's like The Ring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, said it, they said if you extend it to five years, I think it was 10. 10 of the people who appeared in this movie died before Dude. like 1972. Wow, that's I mean, like, crazy. Yeah, that's kind of like, it, there, there's very much kind of like, a, like a, the right stuff kind of thing to this. These are like sort of like, a, you know, Earthborn astronauts in this like you know insane kind of like uh, masculine vainglorious like suicidal energy to like just put yourself in a fucking rocket and like go faster <laughs> than anyone else alive, but like knowing full well that like there, there is something very suicidal about it. Yeah, like there's that one sequence where they explain the uh, the curved road, and that specific road is so bumpy that it never feels like there's suspension at all. And they, <laughs> yeah. const- I think they said they have to gear. The tires are like every- leaving the ground. Sometimes. Yeah, they have to change gears like every two seconds. So by the time they're finished the race, it's like three thousand gear changes or something like that. And it's just like. I can't imagine being on a road where you're just going 120 miles per hour hoping that this thing doesn't hit one bad bump and you're just, you know, off. Oh, yeah. And they're driving in all weather. There's one point where they drive in the rain and like the mist is coming off the road as they're as they're driving on it. And they're kind of like slipping and sliding a little bit. Uh, And I think that's also the scene where one of the wheels comes off and the guy, it like flies into two children bystanders. Oh, right. The French guy. Yeah. (laughs) And you're kind of just like, and yeah, I think, I think, that's the uh the the frenchman who who does that one and he's sort of an interesting character because he's sort of uh he's the the front runner i think he's the guy
guy who's like he's been the world champion i think twice yeah he's the one i think who ends up dying in the yeah. final race too yeah um yeah, but the guy dies what a brutal death but My he God. actually has because again uh these races in front sequence. of his wife who he's having who he's cheating on yeah. and mistress yeah. yeah none of these guys particularly Which apparently likeable. he's done a ton of times yeah even even though there is like the, the movie does gesture towards sort of motivations and sympathies for kind of like each one it just depends on how much you actually end up picking up on because again <laughs> yeah. uh, as much as the racing sequences are amazing they are it is like a half hour of racing for a two and a half hour movie. And it really is like a lot of downtime with the characters in kind of like this melodrama. And there are a couple interesting moments. I did like the bit where the Frenchman talks to the girl who he's kind of like wooing a little bit, or she sort of seems sort of intrigued by him as a racer. And he's talking about racing and she, and she's talking about how horrible it was that that one guy almost died on the racetrack. And, uh, he's just like, he explains to her that like, the reason he's a winner is because he's grown increasingly cynical about racing. And he's like, yeah, when someone crashes like that, like that's how I know to put the pedal on the metal, like harder, right? Uh, because everyone else will slow down and stop and be worried about that person for like a split second. He's yeah, like, that doesn't even... occur to me because I need to win. And she, and yeah, and she says something along the lines of like, what a terrible way, way to, to win. win. Yeah. And he's just like, there's nothing terrible about winning. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> just all they're out for. Yeah. So like there are sort of like, they try to carve out interesting shades for these characters, but I do think like these characterizations are broad enough that they do kind of get a little crippled under the weight of like a three hour movie. Like yeah, this, this yeah. does not end up feeling as like rich in text as something like the other three hour movies we've talked about, like Lawrence of Arabia uh, right. for one stage. Yeah, no, even, even this the movie end- does not wear, does, you know, like to like a, a contemporary audience, like this movie does not wear its length. Uh, particularly well, certainly not like Lawrence of Arabia, which at four hours just is like a, a joy and a breeze at every every single moment. Um, but yeah, like if, you know, if you're into cars and like just this is just like huge, like you know, classic like '60s era, just like huge, like like I said, international cast, international locations, like um, amazing, you know, huge cameras. Uh, I, I think I read that they cameras. Yeah, well, because I think I read that they uh, the filming for this required the use of every single existing Panavision seventy millimeter camera that was out there at the time. They literally <laughs> oh called them all in to shoot this movie. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah it's just like the height of like. Um, just grand like 60s filmmaking like in in every respect of like every in every just like of technical filmmaking like an amazing spectacle but i guess i would say like um you could probably just watch like the first and last 20 minutes of the movie (laughs) well before we go we definitely have to mention the opening credits for this we we talked about it on our previous john frankenheimer episode because uh saul bass did the opening yeah Yeah. he he did the opening credits for seconds which are amazing yeah uh which are just these extreme like mutating distorted close-ups of like a human face um which obviously kind of lends itself to the identity thriller where someone has like paid a corporation to give him a new body a new face to live out a new life and then that corporation in turn decides to swallow him whole uh so (laughs) like these extreme sort of like disgusting close-ups of like an eye and a mouth distorting and Saul Bass put like these really creepy strings on it and stuff too uh and then he also did the opening credits for this and he did a lot of obviously opening credits for Hitchcock films on all the nuts and bolts those extreme close-ups of like like inside of the engine or when they're sort of like uh yeah they're 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 taking the nuts and bolts and they're they're making them tighter the the back shots of like the the sort of like streak and glow of their helmets and like the sheen of the car 
cars and like the texture of the tires. Yeah. And, and again, uh, I don't think that there was score. It's all just the sound design of the cars again. Yeah. It's engines revving, which, which again, he went and took and used in the actual action set pieces for Ronan, but you can see him start to mess with that here. So it's interesting actually watching him develop the first ever filming of cars this way and using formula and working with formula one drivers and then watching him apply that later to a stylish like crime movie but yeah. apply the same techniques and a lot of the same people something i also wanted to mention with the the overture that's that's the first uh, oh, piece yeah. of music the the horns it, it doesn't continue but i thought that this was a great effect i don't i i didn't look up who who composed it but it, it's genius this this part uh he takes horns and he makes them kind of like sweep in and out and it makes it sound like uh like what cars do, like when like they the, pass like you. So it goes like, oh, vroom, I see. Vroom. And it's, it's just, <laughs> it was such a, a cool, um, it, it just a very, very smart way to kind of, you know, place Speaking the tone of, which, of the film. Speaking of which, the composer was uh, Maurice uh, Jar, who was the composer for Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Chicago. Oh, well, shit, there you so go. So there you go. <laughs> Incredible. Very, very good. Nailed it. <laughs> yeah, but that, that was a, a, a great opening. I thought that that was genius. Oh, no, absolutely. Well, I think leaning over here into the reductive rating round and kind of final final statements uh, on this one, for me, this gets like a, I would say it gets a high high three. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I do think that it has like absolutely astonishing racing sequences that we've already talked about uh, in depth here. For me, it was just the drama felt a little bit broad, a little bit soapy and kind of like that old hollywood way that's not necessarily bad i mean in, in fact i just think there's too much of it well yeah and and like this exact like, it kind doesn't of movie need to be just three hours long it's just derivative like it, this exact kind of movie like exists in so many different contexts that i've yeah. seen exploring like kind of like the 30s through 50s canon of of, of hollywood like, you, like thing- you can see this exact same movie play out but like with cowboys yeah. or with like pilots as like kind of like Although the dangerous I, thing I that they like do the way that the journalist at the end when she's kind of like she has the blood on her hands and she's oh, yeah. like is this what you wanted you know at least there's like some, some little on the nose but, it, but little, it's cool but you know what I mean? you know, yeah yeah there's something there they're, they're trying <laughs> yeah no I, I, absolutely it's just funny because like this exact kind of movie i just found it better than like you know the uh, the the relationship stuff that was all yeah at least they're speaking on kind of the industry and the drivers themselves for me there's just nothing about this that is like better than like something like like in a a howard hawks movie like only angels have wings or something like that which is like a 1930s one about like a pilot community and like it's really really rich in the text of characters who like are in this small island and they're taking uh pilot transports in and out but it's really dangerous to drive in that kind of like tropical weather yeah um and a lot of the pilots die in the film and like the characters are really hurt by this and because the rest of the film is like a hangout film so imagine it's kind of like that opening like that first two hours of like dirty dozen where it's like you get to really fall in love with these characters and hang out with them and watch them have good times and then they sort of get picked off uh in this really dramatic way and i feel like this never just developed that rapport of like the hangout movie like i never sat it wasn't like uh rio bravo where you're sitting there and you just wish you could have more time hanging out with with my rifle my pony and me exactly like there's nothing (laughs) like that in this like in fact actually you're kind of a little um annoyed at some of the characters or or you think that sometimes that they're being rude or bad or you know and there's not a lot of scenes where they're ever together i find it's mostly like separate dramas yeah and then they and then they all connect in the race connect yeah yeah Yeah, like but they're never really connecting much outside of that um so i feel like they just they they could have had something more there but they never fully quite 
hit it home to to make it have more moving effect on you. But that, again, does not change the fact that, like, the absolute, like, technical precision... And I do think that John Frankenheimer is genuinely more interested in the technical precision oh, of yeah, the car stuff is. as a filmmaker. Because <laughs> yeah. uh, it, it honestly is more emotional just like... I mean, he even ends with the film with se- kind of the, the tip of the hat <laughs> to the drivers themselves and not, like, the, the drama that went through, right? So Yeah, the, just, just like the actual technical precision of the racing scenes and stuff. Right. You can feel like the heart and soul is more in those in sequences. Um, even, you know, even, even the like split screen effects and all the different techniques he employs to really get you into the zone of racing seem to be where he was interested in. So yeah, because of that, like solid high three for me, probably. Sweet. Yeah. I'm going to give it the same. Um, it's just a lot of the drama just didn't really work for me. Kind of same as what you were saying. Uh, one thing I thought that was decent though, just to uh, throw it out there was the, uh, some moments between Scott, who was the guy that did the initial crash, and then his wife, who he's having a lot of issues with. And he's the most sympathetic character of the definitely. bunch, for sure. He's like but the underdog I, comeback story of yeah, the movie. But what I found interesting is when they have that discussion and they just agree that they're going to be together, even though they know that they're not gonna, their decisions aren't going to make each other happy. Mm. And then after that conversation, he still asks her, uh, like, do you think this is all going to be worth it? And she's just kind of like, dude, I've already told you it's, this is up to you. You know what I mean? Like I've told you that I'm not on board with what you're doing. And, and you I just, you want to do it anyway. His character, so. even at the end, after all he's went through, still can't understand his wife's perspective on it. And I, I, I thought that that actually worked really well. And um, he died, uh, six months later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> God damn it. Uh, but yeah, yeah. High, high three for me. Uh, still had yeah. a lot of fun with it. I would, uh, yeah, I would, I'm in total agreement with you guys. I would say that, like, you know, this is, you know, uh, this is a must see if you're like a Frankenheimer completist. Yeah. If you are a, you know, car guy or just like are obsessed with all my car guys out there. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. Or or if you're just like obsessed with like, you know, the, like the the technical wizardry and like the filmmaking technique of uh, the car chases. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, like, yeah, to echo your points, like a lot of the, you know, the emotional plot lines of, of the film itself are, you know, not terribly compelling or never really like amount to a whole lot, but you do get, um, Toshiro Mifune in an, uh, in an American film. So that's cool. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell you yeah. love to see that. And also, uh, I don't know if you guys felt this watching this George Lucas totally ripped this off for the pod racing stuff, right? Oh, like like all, yeah. all the little oh, yeah. bits where they're Definitely. like flicking the little switches inside and like they're looking at each other like directly and like they're kind of in the little yeah. compartments with no windshields and like looking 100%. at each other. 100%. And like, <laughs> like, like, like when that crash happens, I'm pretty sure the visual language is the same like when the kid like fucks up the other guy and he crashes to the side and stuff like that. Like, yeah, I, yeah. like I was watching it and I was just like, damn, George. All right. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's actually uh, spot on, I think. Thanks, dude. Oh, and I have uh, uh, one final uh, stray thought that I forgot about uh, Ronin. Hell yeah. And that is that um, I think Ronan was basically made possible by Frankenheimer agreeing to take over um, a legendary disaster, the island of Dr. Moreau, after Richard Stanley was fired from it. <laughs> I did hear about that. I feel that. like I've heard of like, this. Basically, yeah. like, yeah, if he, like, you, like, he agreed to do that movie like based on, like, he was like, I'll, I'll do this piece of shit. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. me, I'll fucking like, finish like, it. Like a, like, a, like a multiple picture deal with United Artists. So, like, Island of Dr. Moreau is why we have uh, Ronan. And well, I would you. highly recommend the the documentary about the making of Island of Dr. Moreau and Richard Stanley, uh, Lost Souls. 
Okay, well, I've we'll had see. That on my list, I, actually. I have to see that because I actually, for the first time in a while, uh, like I finally have been diving into Richard Stanley. I watch Hardware for the first time, and I also watch oh, Dust I'm Devil. I've added those lists because um, of you, yeah. Hardware, by the way, is amazing. Well, it's very good low-budget horror movies, but now, Hardware is great, but now is the time to get on board the Richard Stanley train because, almost like it was plucked from my head, yeah, and made boy. specifically for me, Richard Stanley is directing right now an adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's The Color Out of Space starring Nicolas Cage. Starring Nicolas yes. Cage. Okay, well, don't He's freak my out. my favorite actor. But uh, I, for my publication out of New York, the film stage I'm so that I'm excited. writing for at TIFF, it's not being directed. It's done. It is playing, headlining the TIFF Midnight Madness oh, genre element of the festival. You fuck it. And I called dibs <laughs> on writing about it. I, I messaged my editor and I was like, if I don't get to write about Color Out of Space, I will actually not go. <laughs> so he was like, it. okay, it's yours. So I okay. will be well, seeing I, the first press screening of Color Out of Space in like, uh, actually, by the time you guys are listening to this, I've probably already written about the film. Uh, I have so much rage and envy. <laughs> okay, well, haha, I, I, I was uh, just at H.P. Lovecraft's uh, grave uh, last weekend. So. Yeah, no, I saw all of that, and I was very excited to tell you, because I didn't know that you had heard about the movie yet. I was just like, oh, maybe Will hasn't doesn't know that there's a Richard Stanley H.P. Lovecraft, but of course he does. He already <laughs> that, that knows. Is, Richard Stanley is the perfect director to direct uh, what is, I think, my favorite H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah, I, uh, actually, right. because of I'm so writing about it. I just read that. it and it is amazing. It freaked the shit out of me reading oh, that, that story. Awesome. I'm so excited. So plus Nick Cage. I mean the cage, baby. <laughs> Come on now. Hot off of Mandy. Um, <laughs> Hell yeah. But yeah, so I think that that will wrap it up for this week's episode. Thanks so much for joining us uh, here. Will, if you've got anything to plug, this is the place to do it. Uh, uh, listen to episode one and come town. If you haven't done so already. <laughs> nice podcast check them out <laughs> short and sweet uh so yeah i'm uh at the toronto international film festival right now that you guys are listening to this uh so if you guys want to see anything that i'm writing i'm writing about it at the film stage i'm probably posting it on twitter right now but there's all kinds of nonsense i'm seeing i will be there yes watching the joker film <laughs> the incel king of comedy joker i will be there i'm also watching a ton of like awesome like what looks like uh sort of like these there's, there's these korean horror films there's italian Ooh. films there uh i'll be watching the lighthouse because i'm super oh, stoked about yeah. seeing willem dafoe yeah. and robert pattinson hell, hell yeah dude uh, brother i'm very jealous of you also <laughs> i will be too. writing about uncut gems uh, I might have already stop. written about it. <laughs> Why are you just Hanging trying up. to make us pissed off? <laughs> so if you guys are interested in any of those films, I've either already written about them or will be uh, at the time that you guys are listening oh, to man. this. Uh, but in one week's time from you guys hearing this episode, we have our bonus Patreon episode for you guys, and we will be... <laughs> uh, there's a new Rambo movie out, and we've right. only talked about on this show, we did a our, our very early episode. Road. <laughs> we did First Blood... And we did Rolling Thunder 1977 as a double feature very early on in the show. So this time we're going to do That's Rambo First Blood feature. Part 2. Oh, yeah. We're going to do Rambo 3. And we are going to do Rambo 2008 as Hell a trilogy yeah. episode. By the way, I still can't believe they used Old Town Road for the new trailer for Rambo. That's, that's, that's incredible. incredible. Uh, <laughs> a quick, uh, quick Rambo 3 uh, shout out. And I guess this is a plug. Um, the dedication of the, uh, the Chapo book. 
is uh, to the brave Mujahideen fighters in the, of Afghanistan. <laughs> and when the paperback comes out in October, we have changed the dedication to the brave people of Afghanistan, yeah, like they did for the uh, subsequent VHS release. Of yeah, the film. Yes. Hell yeah, hell yeah. Yeah, I can't. We're definitely going to be talking a lot about that well, when we hit that challenge. episode on Patreon next <laughs> yeah. week. So that's what we're talking about next week to line uh, up with the release of Rambo: Last Blood. So good. And then bouncing off of that, we are going to be back with a special guest, Nathan. Smith, a um, sort of like a American South film critic, and he is bringing on with him a follow-up to our Rambo episode that directly ties into it, oh. uh, Missing in Action and POW The Escape, which I believe are uh, vaguely uh, rah-rah America Chuck Norris, oh, uh, Chuck Norris Vietnam. Movies. I think Missing in Action is Chuck Norris, and then POW The Hell Escape I think yes. might also be, and it also is based on the sort of like Bo Gritz conspiracies about there still being POW prisoners uh, in in Vietnam despite like the war being over and them having sent them all back already, right. which is what they based Rambo 2 on. So right. we're also going to be doing that in two weeks time for all the free listeners. That's amazing. But yes, that will wrap it up for this week's episode. Thanks as always for listening and keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy. Cheers. <laughs>